week on Two Girls, One Podcast. Why would four out of five doctors recommend Tic Tacs when Mentos is obviously the fresh maker? Um, what's that? Tic Tac. I'm being told this episode has nothing to do with delicious minty candies and everything to do with our horrifying lack of critical thinking skills and our crumbling democracy. We'll give you three more seconds to bail out now if you want to. Three, two, one. If you're still here, then stand by for the only podcast hosts who take the cinnamon challenge with every breakfast, Lindsay Ford and Allison Goldberg. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Two Girls, One Podcast. I am one of the girls. My name is Lindsay. I am the other girl. My name is Allie. And we are here with our producer, Matt, who we usually never introduce until he randomly says something. But welcome, Matt. I I was going to... What are uh, you no, doing over there? I'm good. No, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Your pet squirrel just bit you or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll have you know I have five live butterflies on my dining room table that hatched out of chrysalises as caterpillars. That's, I'm that's sorry, what? That's what everyone with children that have single digits in their age does. Honestly, is, I would do that and I am not a child. But totally. The reason I, I know is because I go over. I'm like, what stage are they at? Are they about to come out? Can I come <laughs> hang out? Been, has it been five days? You <laughs> can get me. caterpillars in the mail and then let them eat the food and then put them in a nice cozy place. And then in a couple, in a week, you get butterflies. But and what do you mean they're your on your table? Like, what are they doing? There's an enclosure that's like a net. And you put the, once the caterpillars become chrysalis, 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 you then put them in there with sugar water and you let them uh, gestate and then the butterflies pop out. And so probably tomorrow we will release them into the yard where they will immediately be eaten by birds and nat- the cycle of nature will be complete. <laughs> So I am working a program in the mountains and last night, every time I'm looking at a campfire and I'm not having to speak to the group, I always am always, I'm constantly thinking like a moth to the flame burned by the fire. I'm thinking that Janet Jackson song. I'm thinking (laughs) it in my head. And last night, I swear to you, while I thought it, a literal moth flew into the fire and committed suicide. And I was like, I did that. I'm powerful. That was, that was Jesus moving through you and creating that moment. And everyone else watching was on, on my side of the fire was like, <laughs> and the people on the other side of the fire didn't see what was happening. So they were like, shh, shh, shh quiet down, quiet down. We're like, <laughs> did you see what happened? We're witnessing something horrifying. Well, speaking of witchcraft and pseudoscience, Whoa. <laughs> um, we are talking to Dr. Cat today who has been busy fighting misinformation on TikTok. And while this might not sound like a community, a lot of doctors really stepped up in the pandemic and sort of accidentally 
became famous on TikTok and continue <laughs> to fight the good fight against misinformation. Um, I personally am very interested in this topic because as I, as I'm pretty sure I've discussed on the podcast, I have been flagged for misinformation when I'm just making fun of conspiracy theorists. So I'm like, <laughs> let me get this straight. I've been flagged for making fun of climate change deniers, but their shit stays up <laughs> or yeah. their flat earth stuff stays up and mine is taken down got oh, it TikTok. algorithms you yeah. silly, well, so silly i might algorithms. have to sidebar with our guest today but i'm very mm. excited to hear what she has to say and i think in general even before the downfall of democracy science communication was and remains very important and i think we need to figure out as a society more ways to do that. So I'm interested in what she's going to tell us. Basically, to be a TikTok influencer doctor, you have to be a hot dude <laughs> or what? a woman who is no nonsense, just giving it to you straight, hmm. looking just like a woman. They're not like the TikTok lady doctors are not out here like full face. They're like, Good. we're out here fighting an epidemic. And the TikTok <laughs> dude doctors are like, I worked out today and now I'm ready to do my TikTok. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, this is what I want from my doctor community. This is what I want. <laughs> wow. So the double standard hits men and not women, you think? Yes. That's I'm how I it. feel. Like the women are all beautiful just because women are beautiful, but they're not mm. out here being like, to do my TikTok video today, I have to look great. And I feel like all these dudes are like, I brushed my hair. They did do good looking <laughs> stuff. Like they're, they're not putting on makeup or anything, but they're like, I my scrubs are, are clean. I brushed my hair. I did 26 pushups right before I shot this. And I'm like, I see it. Dude, that bicep is doing that job. I love Good. it. Good, as they should. Matt, do you have some medical trivia for us? I do have some medical trivia for you. And after this trivia, will we be doctors? Yeah. Hmm, hold on. Let me check my paper. That's how it works on the internet. ABC, uh, medical information. And then uh, afterwards, yes, I do. you are done. Yes, there's, there's an asterisk here. And if I go scroll to the bottom, it says you will be licensed medical doctors if you get this question Wonderful. correct. Wonderful. Okay, get your vaccines, guys. Those are the, sure. those are the, st <laughs> those are the, <laughs> the stakes. Uh, today's topic is about medical misinformation on social media, as you have uh, explained. But uh, I have a big news flash for you both. Uh, humans have been really bad at science and medicine for like thousands of years. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they believe a lot of very stupid and horrific things could cure them of diseases. So Blood we've letting. got a fun one. Yeah, there you go. You know, <laughs> you know. Uh, in Europe, between the 12th and 16th centuries, one insane medical practice was widely thought to be great for curing a variety of diseases. What were Europeans eating? As medicine in the late Middle Ages, one of these is real. Each other. The other two <laughs> I made up. Mm, get ready, get ready. We're getting close here. A, the corpses of Egyptian mummies often ground up into a fine powder. No. That is choice no. A. No, what is wrong with you? That okay. should be illegal, but we know. It's the 12th century, dude. Yeah. Wait, wait, there's no rules. I'm, no I'm not rules. voting for that one, but go She's on. She's not, Allie's not going for that, but, but to hear me out, hear me out on the other choices. B, baby poop and urine mixed with a mother's breast milk, but only if the baby and mother were biologically related. So you got a cocktail uh, 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 
of uh, of juices there. I just ate breakfast and I almost hurled. Yeah, but they definitely used to do that because remember in the pandemic where some guy started saying that drinking your own urine is better than the vaccines. No, but but I believe you. The only time I ever considered drinking my own urine was when Bear Grylls said that if you are very dehydrated, you should do it in the desert. Right. 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 Yeah. No, I support that. And since you live in California, which is why we do it all the time. There's a drought going on. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have one more choice for you. C. A virgin's bath water. So the water left over from a virgin who took a bath. Oh, That's that it. There's a lot of virgin well. stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, it's is definitely almost... B, but I'm not going to say it. So I'm going to go C. Yeah, I'm going to go C. I'm going to go with B because I think that, um, <sighs> yeah, I think C is almost too obvious. So it's going to be B. Okay. I, I can't. I don't want to hear if that's true. I okay. feel so ill. So what you're saying is that for 400 years in Europe, uh, people were ingesting baby poop and pee mixed with breast milk. That's Allie. But uh, uh, Lindsay's going with the virgin bathwater. Probably easier to to come by and, and administer, I would say. I mean, it's hard to be a virgin when everybody's out here raping, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, fair point. Uh, no one's choosing ground up Egyptian mummies. No, that's that's not it. Okay. That's in the 1100s. You, you thought there was like wide access to Egyptian mummies in Europe? Okay. Yeah, Matt, that right. one's flawed. Your medical license is on the line. We will find out oh, who no. got the correct answer after this commercial break. <laughs> we are so happy that so many of you listen to us and we are especially happy for our Patreon supporters and we would like to thank those who donate at the $10 or more level right now so thank you Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran Jessica Fox, Kathy Phillips Matthew Scott, Melissa Elliott, William Ken M, and Jessica Kybell. you all rock if you would like to rock out just like these people, you can go to patreon.com slash 2G1P and donate at any amount. But if you want us to say your names, you gotta do it at $10 or more. And now a real post from nextdoor.com, the social network that reveals what it sounds like inside an old person's mind. Courtesy of... Best of next door. Was on a walk tonight and had two separate cars full of teenagers scream 420. Does anyone know what this is about? I feel like it's one of those tic-tac challenges or something. Tell me you're out of touch without telling me you're out of touch. <laughs> All right, let's hear which of these Matt made up like a fucking psycho. Yeah, uh, between the 12th and 16th century, Europeans used to do some crazy shit. Uh, a lot of crazy shit, but one crazy thing in particular uh, to cure many ailments. Was it A, eating the corpses of Egyptian mummies as, uh, as powder? Nobody chose it. Uh, B, baby poop and urine mixed with mother's breast milk. Allie went with that because she's, uh, you know, she's on, she's on the screen. She's not afraid. She's not afraid to, to speak the truth mm-hmm. on TikTok and get banned. Uh, C, 
the bathwater from a virgin. Lindsay, you went with that. Yeah, because I'm scared. I was afraid of the poop, pee, breast milk. You should be. If you get this right, you become doctors. If you get it wrong, you remain civilians for the rest of your natural lives. Are you sure you're sticking with these answers? Let's make my mother's dreams come true. Let's do this. (laughs) The correct answer is, I'm sorry to say, it is A. (laughs) You were pushing it so hard, Matt. I thought you were trying to pull us away from it. Okay, That's... I don't understand how the mummy thing is real. Let me explain it. Let me explain it because this is... Because of the shipping costs. Getting mummies from Egypt and grinding up their body parts and then vials of mummy powder and ingesting that was a medical practice for like 400 years in Europe. But the reason for this was due to a linguistic misunderstanding and a very long game of historical telephone. And uh, now bear with me. We talked about like translating the Bible and how fucking crazy that is over the over centuries is come on this ride with me. A substance known as bitumen. I hope I'm saying this right has been used for thousands of years as a construction material and as medicine. Uh, It's a natural hydrocarbon that we know as asphalt. So if you look at a road that is black, blacktop, this is a substance called bitumen. If you heat it up, it's viscous. And if you, when it dries, it hardens to make something stiff. So humans have used it to stabilize broken bones, treat rashes since ancient times. There are records of ancient Roman doctors telling people to ingest asphalt basically to cure coughs dysentery blood clots cataracts toothaches and skin disease basically bitumen was the robitussin of the ancient world everyone used it okay yikes let's fast forward in the 10th century there was a persian physician named razes razes i don't know how you say that uh, he refers to bitumen as mummia, and this is b- based on the word mum, which is Persian for wax. So he's looking at this asphalt, squishy, melty stuff, and he's like, oh, it's like wax. I'm going to call it wax. I'm going to call it mum. I'm going to call it mummia. Uh, basically a slang term. A hundred years later in the 11th century, mummia becomes a very common word for bitumen, which is this you know, ancient Robitussin, right? So this seems to be the reason why when Europeans first discovered ancient Egyptian tombs, they called the bodies mummies because they assumed that the black stuff on the mummies was mummia or bitumen. So they're conflating the word for medicine and the stuff that they thought was on mummies. And literally that's where the word mummy comes from. Mummy is either in a, in, in a European or, or English word. So you go to the 12th century and there were shortages of the bitumen in Europe. So medical practitioners were like, well, these mummies are covered in this medicine. Why don't we just get them? And so as they were being excavated, they they thought stupidly that mummies were coated in this substance that they could no longer get. So they would just fucking grind it up and make medical powder. This lasted for 400 years. And it was so pervasive that even at to, to Ali's point, Getting mummies and getting them out of the ground or out of tombs and getting them to Europe, really fucking hard. So people used to use corpses, local corpses, and pass them off as mummies and make powder out of corpses and just be like, oh, yeah, 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 these are Egyptian (laughs) mummies. It'll work great. 
and people would eat and drink this shit. Meanwhile, Batuman wasn't even that good at doing what it was supposed no, to do. No, <laughs> most almost. I mean, I get the idea of like, oh, I broke a bone and we don't have casts, so let's like put cover it, you know, it, cover it, and and secure it with asphalt and then crack it open. Like that, that makes sense. But like eating, eating asphalt it? as medicine, I don't know about that. You guys heard it here. If you have COVID. Go outside and lick the pavement. Lick the pavement. <laughs> that, I think it's going to work. Lick the pavement or dig up your dead pet and eat its bones. Are your grandfather's ashes on the mantle fire <laughs> by the fireplace? <laughs> if you're not feeling well, take a spoonful. And sniff a spoonful it. of grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, we all know the dangers of social media misinformation, and we're going to cover it here today. But like for centuries, we just think that things are things and we do stupid things. Mm-hmm. And that today was an we still do shit. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like we just assume, I know what you, mean. you know, and, and as bad as it is out, out there on Facebook and TikTok, like we have the science, like eventually we'll figure out to look at the science rather than this, but like, isn't that, I don't, I, I'm well, glad I don't live back Well, unfortunately, it's medicine's errors that then make people go to incorrect solutions. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, medicine is still not foolproof. It's still run by humans, but like, that doesn't mean that you know better than them. Right. How about, oh my gosh, I think Dr. Cat is here. Thank yeah. God. All right, we got to talk to our <laughs> guest. We are so excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Katrine Wallace who is an epidemiologist at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Kat. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. We're so excited to have you. <laughs> okay, we're basically doctors here, just so you know. And um... mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you failed the trivia, so you did not get the license. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> she doesn't know that yet. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're doctors, but like we got an honorary degree from an online school or something. <laughs> okay, so listen, I did some Googling and I saw that epidemiologists are often referred to as disease detectives. Mm-hmm. True? False? Tell us what you do. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually true. So epidemiology is a branch of medicine that we deal with populations as our patients and not people. So what our job is, is to kind of study and analyze how diseases spread in communities, what the patterns are, what are risk factors for disease, and how using, trying to figure out the detective part is like, if you figure out who's getting a disease, then you can try to figure out how to control it. So for example, you know, if an infectious disease is spreading just in one community, you can kind of try to figure out like, what about that community is enabling the spread of this one disease? So we use kind of incidence patterns, who's getting it, and then what the risk factors are. And then using those risk factors, we try to figure out how to control the spread or emergence of disease in in populations. Wow. That was a very good explanation. It's almost (laughs) like you've done this before. It's almost like I teach (laughs) this for a living. It's almost like you're a medicine (laughs) and science communicator. What? Okay, so... Wait, wait. uh, Just a quick insert here, if I may. Three, two, one. Previously on Disease Detectives. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Wonderful. You, Kat, you can use that. You can use it in, in your classes. Feel free. Yeah, yeah, I would love, yeah I'll, I'll take that soundbite. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome for that. So let's dive right into it. COVID hits. What are you seeing? How do you end up on TikTok? 
So I honestly was not expecting to be doing what I'm doing. It was never my plan to be a social media science communicator. I actually downloaded TikTok for pretty much the same reason everybody else did. I was bored during the lockdown or the (laughs) stay-at-home order, and I was just kind of scrolling. And I had heard people talking about TikTok, but I you know, more or less just wanted extra stuff to do. (laughs) So I was started to scroll through there. And then, you know, at first, when you download TikTok, you don't even know what's going on. You just see all these videos and you're like, (laughs) what's happening? Yeah. In addition to seeing videos of like people dancing and different topics, I was seeing also COVID-19 misinformation. And at that time, it was more just like COVID wasn't even real. It was all a hoax to throw the election and all kinds of strange conspiracy theories that it was really just the flu and it was all made up. And so as an epidemiologist, I I sort of started making content more out of just a sense of duty because I, I felt like it was my like because I understood this stuff, I could help naively thinking I would solve some problem by <laughs> by making videos. <laughs> but I... Re- <laughs> I think you're making a dent, okay? That's what I have to say about that. Uh, Allie has cured many diseases by making TikTok videos. Oh I don't know God. what you're talking about. You never know. You oh, know- yeah, for sure. She's also spread many diseases. <laughs> By I'm working on TikTok it. videos. That's the real reason I'm here. I did notice that was a risk factor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Cat, my friends are big fans. I am the person who's like, well, I have enough smart friends. They'll just tell me what I need to know. But all of those people follow you and, and a few other people who were spreading the good truth. <laughs> And the bad truth, I guess, the sad truth during this, you know, pandemic, you and other creators like you were like, here is what is actually going on. And this is what you can do. And I'm wondering how those people either shared their gratitude or posed questions that maybe informed some of your videos. I definitely hear from people and I love that. I I get a lot of positive comments, a lot of negative comments too. A lot of people around the time of the vaccine I was hearing a lot of comments like, oh, your video really helped my aunt or my mom or my coworkers who were sort of afraid or on the fence. And I like the fact that people trust me and that they could use me as a resource for real evidence-based information. Because the problem with the misinformation is that people are listening to the misinformation instead of to the public health guidances, and it's being propagated and spread so widely on social media that I, you know, people really don't know what's true. And that's, that's been kind of the thing that keeps me going. I try to do my explanations in ways that are kind of on a layperson's level. So anybody who finds my video is going to understand it. I feel like everything you do has ripple effects, even like your podcast probably gets shared and you probably get a lot of people that like it that never tell you, right? Yeah. So everybody that kind of gives you a positive comment, there's probably many more that don't. I do feel like I'm helping people, but I was very naive when I started because I didn't realize the scope of the problem, I guess. Can you tell us how you discovered the scope of the problem and what your first viral TikTok was? The very first kind of problem that made me kind of motivated me to make a video was this whole concept of the conspiracy theory that COVID wasn't a real disease, that it was all made up. 
so what I kept seeing was that the deaths, all the deaths that were coming in in spring of 2020 were not really people dying from COVID, but they were just dying of other things. And hospitals were miscoding them as COVID because they were getting paid extra money if somebody died from COVID, which is ludicrous anyway, because they... (sighs) People don't get paid for people dying. That's just not the way the medical reimbursement Mm. (laughs) works. But that is wild. That was the conspiracy that hospitals were just putting down COVID because they were getting like an extra payment from the government or something. Like with any conspiracy theory, it starts with a kernel of truth and then just gets blown out of proportion because there was government reimbursement for COVID cases, but that's because they required so much more ICU care than a normal kind of ICU patient. So they did get a subsidy for people that were in ICU, but these were documented COVID cases. There wasn't any way to just put that down for anybody, right? That's when I started making videos because I was seeing this kind of horrible misinformation. And I knew that that kind of misinformation where people were was going to cause people to not believe in the seriousness of the situation. Like people aren't really dying. Like that's a terrible thing to propagate because that puts people's lives at risk. At that point, we didn't have a vaccine. We had nothing. I made a video about my very first one that kind of went kind of more widely, I guess now I wouldn't call it viral, but at the time I thought it was, (laughs) where I was just explaining how the coding works for death certificates. And if you would have told me like a year before that, that I would be on social media talking about how to code death certificates, I would have not believed you, right? Because who cares? But at that point, people were really interested to see that like not COVID's not always the first cause of death, but it's not even for cancer. Like you don't just put cancer on the death certificate. It's always like a constellation of events that lead to the death and cancer is the underlying cause. Same with COVID, like it leads to pneumonia or you know renal insufficiency or something. It causes something else to shut down. And I was so surprised at the reaction I got from it because there were people that were really kind of nasty, like that I'm lying or that I'm being paid by the deep state. And then there was other people that were really grateful and wanted to know more about how this stuff worked. And so I, every question I got, I would just answer the question. And then before I knew it, I was explaining epidemiology and (laughs) how we (laughs) calculate things and how we do things. And people were really interested in epidemiology. In my life, nobody's been interested in epidemiology. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody knew what I did. And so it got to the point where I wished I worked at like, like a rock venue or something like bartending because I like that seemed cooler to me than anything I was doing. I was such a nerd that when you said rock vendor, I was like, I wonder if she wanted to be a geologist or like working in a crystal shop (laughs) and you meant rock music. (laughs) No, I mean like a place where bands play. Yeah. Nobody cared about epidemiology, but in 2020, all of a sudden, everything I said was like, oh, this is an epidemiologist. This is who we need to listen to. And that was really kind of a weird experience for me because people had not really previously cared. You're cool now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know what, though? How cute is it that people didn't know? <laughs> it is so, it, yeah, exactly. It's so, it's so funny because I really kind of even didn't know. Like, I mean, I studied it like mid-2021. I'm like, okay, so this is what I trained for and I actually don't like 
<laughs> That's very funny. You're like, wow, I wish it was just Ebola. Can you imagine <laughs> like longing for the days of Ebola and like <laughs> SARS being not SARS-CoV-2? It's like just regular old SARS that you're afraid of the male. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah, so 2020 was kind of the year that epidemiology became a household word. I think if I would have started my page later, it wouldn't have done as well as it did because I think in, just in 2020, people were just interested in epidemiology. What were some of the things that people asked you about or that you researched that you maybe wouldn't have really taken a deep dive into? My regular focus, I guess, in research before this whole experience was more diseases of the aged, so like geriatric, aging, so a lot of influenza, a lot of cancer. I personally have never studied coronaviruses before because they were not kind of in my purview. All the immunology that I've done research on with coronaviruses since this pandemic started was all new to me. I mean, I've done immunology, obviously, with other other viruses. A lot of the things that people asked were things I already, at the beginning, were things I already would teach in class, like the difference between incidence and prevalence or, you know, how we calculate case fatality rates. They, they would hear things in the media and then ask me to explain them. That was easy, kind of. I could just kind of rattle those videos off it without doing any research. <laughs> but as the pandemic went on, you know, people really, I think, were having, a tr having trouble kind of keeping up with this really fast-moving, dynamic data landscape that was kind of always changing and still having issues with that, I think. And these conversations and these kind of data evolutions aren't usually things that the lay public is privy to, right? A lot of these conversations happen between scientists and the FDA and the CDC kind of behind closed doors a little bit. And since this is so public and so so it's followed by so many people. I think that some of them had science class since high school, right? So they were confused by, for example, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I guess Dr. Fauci said we didn't need to wear masks. And then a couple months later, we found that there was asymptomatic spread of the disease. And then we changed that because we had more data. We had more information on this novel virus that we, we knew that it was spreading without symptoms, which isn't really something we'd seen with influenza or any other kind of virus, that respiratory virus. And so we changed that. And people didn't really understand the scientific method of like you collect more data. So suggestions, recommendations change based on the new data. Instead, it was like this person's lying or they were lying before and it's about control now. And some, some different voices were entering the discourse that weren't science voices and it made everything very kind of confusing and convoluted. Yeah. I feel like people still don't understand that process and are claiming yeah. that it's just people trying to control uh, the population or whatever. So what do you think are the best things we can do? Like on a positive light, are there, are you seeing positive change? How can we continue to educate people around essentially the scientific me method? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think we need better science education in this country. And I mean, I'm, I can't really speak for other countries, but from what I've seen, I had to make a series of just basic science videos that I could tag people in if they were starting to argue with me about 
questions like that, just like levels of evidence, like a randomized clinical trial published in like New England Journal of Medicine is not the same as a YouTube video where somebody's talking about one case they saw in a clinic and there's no, there's no evidence of this case. Like people don't understand that concept. And they also, like we said, we, they don't understand the new data being collected. Things change based on the new research. I have a son that's in high school and and I know there when he was in public school, his tests that he took, the standardized tests, really only included the math and the verbal. They didn't really focus on the science too much. They did have the class, but it wasn't on the standardized tests at all. So I think that is an issue because I think they do teach to the tests because that's how they get funding and all that other stuff. That's my opinion, but hot take. I like it. It's a hot take. I I think, I think it's a problem. I think that people inserting political opinions into science also was kind of a problem in general, everybody, me, you, everybody, we aren't very good as humans at assessing risk. We have this idea that natural things are less risky than man-made things. So basically like getting COVID, people are always like, oh, it's got a 99% survival rate. It's la la la, whatever you hear. But then the vaccine that's actually saving lives, and we see that in the data every day, people are convinced is bad for you and that it's they're hiding all these deaths and adverse events. And so there's that kind of naturalistic bias going on with this that COVID as a disease is just something that happens and we just need to live with it and and get it. And, you know, and then people aren't very good at assessing their own risk. Like you hear everybody say, I'm young and healthy. Well, what does that mean? You know, like I don't need to worry because I'm young and healthy, (laughs) but you know, COVID really doesn't care. Like you see very severe cases in young people. So It's sort of this weird assessment of risk. And then you also have the social media algorithms that are kind of always amplifying sensational viral content, no matter what it is. It doesn't matter if the information is correct or not. If it's getting shared and liked and engaged with, that's what's going to go viral. So all of these things in 2020 were kind of swirling around and sort of set us up for this co-epidemic of misinformation that's actually a risk factor for more death and disease. Wow. This is depressing, but do you think that you are changing minds or do the social media's echo chambers just kind of create a world in which you are preaching to the choir? So that's a fantastic question. And it's one I think about all the time. And that's why I do things like this and talk to other people's audiences as much as I can do that. Because I do think that the social media algorithms, like, you know, they they work by engagement. So if you're somebody that likes, you know, pictures of cats and you like every picture of cats, your whole feed is just going to be pictures of cats, right? It's the same with anti-science information. If you tend to like conspiracy theories and you know, the government's trying to control us and here's a secret the government doesn't want you to know and content like that, you're just going to keep getting fed that content. I don't think those people are seeing my videos, to your point, unless it's a troll comment. (laughs) I get lots of those. So yeah, that's true to a great extent. 
So I do try to do kind of cross germination as much as I can by going on other people's podcasts or writing as much as I can and doing any other kind of thing that I can do that's outside of my own audience. But I, I just want to give uh, a little credit back to you because like everything that you're, the cross-pollination is so important, but you said earlier here that like, oh, someone shared your video with their aunt and their aunt yeah. was hesitant, but then decided, oh, well, this is a scientist and okay, this convinced me. Yeah. Even if your videos reaching hundreds of thousands or millions of people, even if you only convinced one person to get the vaccine, you have saved lives. You personally have saved lives with your TikTok videos, full stop. Yeah, I've had, and thank you, that's really, I mean, it's always good to get validation that what I'm doing is helping. <laughs> I do feel like that's what motivates me to keep going is that, and mm -hmm. I do tell people, because some people will comment on my videos, it's too bad the people that need to hear this won't ever see it. That, that's right. a comment I get a lot on my videos. Right. And always my reply to that is I'm not really talking to them. I'm talking to the people who are sitting at dinner tables with them or working with them yes. so that they have what they need in their toolbox to rebut any of those kind of conversation. Yeah. Because trying to reach those, trying to reach the other family members yourself is futile. And that I think is discouraging. It's discouraging for a lot of content creators, even outside of the, you know, science communication space. So I, that mentality is very healthy, is very positive, I think. Yeah. You just, I mean, it's like that with anything in the world, right? You just influence what you can and you put positive seeds out there and hope that they grow. <laughs> <laughs> so I read that there's a community of doctors engaging in this work and using TikTok for science communication. Have you connected with these sorts of online colleagues? You know what? I would say that's been the one silver lining of this whole pandemic, actually, is that the community is awesome. Within any community, there'll be a few people that are like in it for clout and competition and all that stuff. But I would say for the most part, I have met the coolest, like-minded people. And I'm so grateful for that because I, I had a community like at work and everything, but there's really something to be said for a bunch of people that kind of just dropped everything and put everything they have into this science education. And, and a lot of us weren't doing this before. We just kind of did it out of necessity now for, from the pandemic. And it's, it's really kind of an all hands on deck thing. You know, not all of us have the same exact areas of expertise. And so we re really rely on each other and collaborate. I just published a paper with Somebody I met on Instagram that we talk all the time now, and I've never even met her in person, but she's a colleague. You know, it's it's really fantastic, the community. And I can't say enough good things about it, actually. I love that. Who was that person that you met? And and what's your paper about? The paper that we just published um, is with um, Jessica Malati Rivera. She's not really active on TikTok, but she is on Instagram. Mm -hmm. We just published a paper on basically an evidence-based argument for adding COVID-19 vaccination to the childhood required vaccination schedule for school. No shit. Like it's insane wow. that it's not well, I got that. I think about that a lot, actually. It, like I know, I know why it's not, but yeah. like, why isn't it? Why isn't it yet? <laughs> 
I don't yeah. know why it's not. Just because people are mad about it? Like, that doesn't seem yes. like you're going to reason. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> Yelling people and politics. I assume, I, you know, Dr. Cat, please inform us. Well, there's a few, you know, a couple of the things you already said probably are a lot to do with it. But I think probably the official reason is because it's not yet fully FDA approved in that age group yet. Yeah. It is in um, 16 plus, but it's still under emergency use authorization for the younger age group. So mm-hmm. so our paper is more like we need to start thinking about this for as soon as it is approved to add it to the schedule. The backlash against vaccinating children for COVID is having effects on other vaccines too. We see the rates of childhood vaccination dropping. And that is a kind of a setting us up for bad things. Yeah. (laughs) So, and it becoming political and medical freedom being kind of on the GOP list of platforms for 2024 is, is scary because if people are not required to vaccinate their kids for public school, we could have some problems. Yeah. Medical freedom is a term that I have not really encountered yet. They've become very clever. Nobody wants to be called anti-vax anymore because that has negative connotations. Hmm. So instead of trying to argue against vaccines using scientific points, which they've tried in the past, and scientists can debunk all of those, as you've probably seen us do online. They now have switched the narrative to be medical freedom. Like, you can't tell me I have to get this vaccine. And that is harder to debunk. It's it's emotional and philosophical. Exactly. Medical freedom, school choice. These are all ways to say. Yep. I don't care if your child dies. <laughs> that's that's what a way to say. Uh, yeah, that. And also, you don't teach my kids about being gay or critical race theory. I'm gonna I'm gonna school my kids. Um, the irony of having medical choice, but not for abortion. <laughs> it's <laughs> right. the only time. Right. But they do say my body, my choice, also about vaccine. And it confuses me to no end. I'm like, well, wait. Yeah. So the pandemic has been going on for a long time, and I know it's still going on in many ways, though we all here are vaccinated. What are the main things that you are working on right now in terms of the videos you're putting out and the misinformation that you're trying to combat? Now, what are the things that you're like always seeing and trying to combat? Now, the CDC has changed the way they track COVID in communities. Um, You probably have heard about this a couple, I think in March, they changed their map from the red, blue and yellow map that, that used to just be transmission. They changed it to more reflect severe disease. So like if hospitals are overwhelmed. So because of that switch, a lot of places are now not looking like they have high transmission because the map is now, you know, it used to be red on the map if there were like 50 or more cases per 100,000 per day. Now they've changed that to 200 cases per 100,000. So they made it four times more for it to move categories. So by the time your community turns to a different color on that map, there's already a high transmission you know, the reason for the switch was because, well, we have vaccines now, we have treatments now, we need to like kind of move on and learn to live with this, right? I get that from an economy perspective and and this kind of thing. But right now we're having a surge that nobody really realizes is happening. <laughs> oh, we realize it. We're just like, dang, the government doesn't care about us. 
<laughs> it's very crazy to me that we're just kind of like throwing our hands up. So for from my perspective, I've switched my content over to being things we can control as people. Like if we really want to prevent, you know, either getting COVID or spreading the disease, there's things that we still can do. And, you know, one of them is avoiding crowded indoor settings. Another thing you can do is make sure that where you are has good ventilation. So I've been doing videos on ventilation. I have a meter that measures how well ventilated places are. And I've been kind of going to different places and measuring it just so people kind of have an awareness of ventilation because it's the one mitigation factor that I feel like hasn't been given enough attention. And it's so important just because I feel like a lot of people right now feel very helpless, like they have no control. They're just going to get COVID because no one cares there are things we can still control. Like wearing a mask is still really important. You know, if there's choices to be outside versus inside, mm -hmm. there are things you can do. And then I have also been doing videos on monkeypox because that's a new emerging issue. Mm. But it's not as, A, it's not as contagious, right? As COVID? Correct. It's a totally different thing. Yep. Yeah. It's not as uh, prevalent. Yes. Okay. Dr. Kat, I have a friend who I told I was interviewing you and she is a big fan. And oh. she sent me questions. May I ask? Oh, excellent. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> These are guest questions from my friend, Lauren. I'm going to read it verbatim because it's kind of funny. She goes, OMG, ask her if this variant has as many asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic contagious folks. Oh, great question. Thank you, Lauren, for asking that. <laughs> that is a good question. So there's a few variants to be aware of. In the winter, we were involved in, that's when Omicron kind of emerged. And that was in, we called that one BA.1 because that was the first kind of one from the Omicron family. Okay. There was BA.2, which is kind of overtook it and ca is causing this second surge. Stemming out from BA.2 is w the one that's really causing problems here in the U.S. right now, and it's called BA.2.12.1. Oh. I know that's a lot of numbers, but that's the <laughs> one right now that's kind of causing this little problem that we're having. You know, you could start calling it Omicromy 3, which is what I call it. <laughs> there already is an, a BA.3, so you can't call it that. <gasps> yeah, it's, there's <laughs> Keep all your science terms and do the sciencey stuff, but when you talk to the public, you call it scorpion death or some <laughs> shit that's going to yeah, scare exactly. people. Well, people were calling it stealth COVID or stealth, Ooh, stealth variant okay. or something. I don't know. BA.2.12. You, you need a marketing department here to really get people. I think we should name them after Republicans. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> the, the cruise variant. The Mitch McConnell. That's a, that's a good yeah, idea. because nobody wants to get that, you know. Not me. <laughs> so there are, to, to the point, is that, yes, there is a lot of pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission in the community. For example, you know, this is a common story. Somebody will test positive for COVID in a household, like a husband or a wife or a roommate or something like that. And then like a day or two later, the other person in the house tests positive. That's happening a lot right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously at home, you, you just are going to do what you're going to do. But that's that's why right now, with all the transmission we have going on, it's really important to avoid those crowded settings. And, and you know, there's all these concerts going on. There's all kinds of things. But I feel like when I hear of my own personal friends 
testing positive, it's because over the weekend they went to a bunch of bars or they went to, you know, a show that was sold out or something like that. People can make their own kind of evidence-based decisions. And if they feel like the risk is worth going to, I'm, I'm a total music fan, so I'm not going to tell somebody not to go to a concert ever. But if you work at a nursing home or if you live with your elderly grandmother or there's little kids in your home that are not vaccinated, then those decisions might be different, you know? Yeah. She goes on to say, oh, and also, does rapid antigen test equal contagious? It does. So there's two different kinds of tests that both involve a nasal swab sample from the patient. The first test is a PCR test, which is the one that we've had from the beginning where you go and they give you your results a couple of days later. But that one is extremely, extremely sensitive. That's why we like that one for diagnosis, because you can test positive on a PCR before you even have symptoms. It'll just pick up genetic material from the virus and amplify it. So because of that sensitivity, it also can continue to test positive for sometimes months after you aren't contagious anymore. So we don't really like the PCR for like going back to work or school or knowing if you can be around people again. So the rapid antigen test is different because it kind of gloms on to replicating like infectious virus. So that's if that test is positive, then you probably are still contagious. And that's why when the CDC came out and said like, oh, everybody can go back to work in five days and just wear a mask for five days, I just like my head blew up because... Oh yeah, that was bananas. That time yeah. frame is like different for every person. And, and so my recommendation always to people who are positive, if it's at all possible, is to do two negative tests 24 hours apart before going back and ending your isolation, because that way you pretty much know you're not contagious anymore. Two negative antigen, rapid antigen tests. Yes. Okay. If somebody's saying like get a PCR test to see if you're not positive anymore, that really doesn't work. The rapid antigen. That's not two, helpful. Yeah. Okay. Two, two rapid antigen tests 24 hours apart is kind of the gold standard in my mind to know that you're not going to spread it. That's super helpful. And just for clarification for, for me and, and listeners, like this is a product you can specifically look for at CVS or Walgreens, like you're looking for a specific type of test. So you can't buy a PCR test. That's something that has to be in a lab. They they do they oh, do that right. for you. <laughs> so okay. So so all of the antigen tests, yeah, yeah, yeah. all the yes. all the rapids, the, okay. all, the, all the ones you can buy in like Walgreens or CVS or Rite Aids. That's all. That's all fine. Perfect. And I I have a a pinned video on my TikTok page that is basically this, what we just talked about. Awesome. Do we have more questions from Lauren? She wanted to know about your relationships with other doctors in the community because she follows several. Yeah. Had you had a relationship with any of them before COVID? And do you have any plans to sort of have a social media doctor meetup sort of thing? You know what? That's so funny. No, I ha didn't know any, any of the other science communicators before the pandemic. All of our meetings were due to science communication online. And that for me started <laughs> in 2020. Mm -hmm. And we do always talk about doing something like that, but we are all so many different places. It's really hard to 
figure out how we would do that logistically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you do it, it will be a social media hit. So (laughs) I know it would be so much fun too. (laughs) I would love it to be honest, because these are people now that I consider to be like my really good friends. Well, we're here for it. (laughs) Go forth. (laughs) Dr. Kat, I have personally had some trouble on TikTok where I am making jokes about conspiracy theorists and or anti-vaxxers, and then I get flagged. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) what do you do to get around TikTok's algorithms asking for a friend? Myself. (laughs) I don't really do anything. I still use the hashtags. I've had the same thing happen to me, though. I had a video taken down for community guidelines where I was literally just reviewing the Moderna protocol for the clinical trial. And I was basically just reading the inclusion exclusion criteria of like what the people in the trial, what people they were recruiting for the trial. It wasn't even like I was giving my opinion on anything. And no matter what I did to re-upload that video, it just kept getting community guidelines. So I would love to to sit here and tell you that after doing this for two years and, and making so many videos, I had an insight into TikTok's moderation and the way the algorithm works. I feel like people that have a lot of attention really fast get kind of looked at a little bit with scrutiny. Like I've seen some accounts, medical creators that come on and get a big following really quick and have a lot of like controversial videos and they will end up getting like banned or something. But I feel like as long as I stick to the evidence, even if people report it, There's really nothing that they can do to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was shadow banned for a little bit and you could see in my analytics that I wasn't showing up on my For You page. And then I decided that TikTok is my abusive boyfriend. How do you get unshadow banned? You have to wait it out. Oh, dang. But you can see in your analytics that you're not showing up the way you used to. But it drove me bananas because I was like, I'm here just like literally making jokes. I've had my audio removed. (laughs) Yeah. But I was told that I didn't have permission to use the audio and it's my own voice. So (laughs) (laughs) you gotta, hey, that's copyrighted. So how dare you? How dare you use your own voice? But anyway, but I'm glad to hear you haven't had too many troubles with it. What's fascinating to me is that like, meanwhile, you know, people who are spreading misinformation stay up. Absolutely. (laughs) Have you ever reported other accounts for spreading misinformation? Every day. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. God's work. I was just uh, texting with two other creators because this nurse was made this video that She has proof that the vaccine has eight. She's a nurse, first of all. She has proof that the vaccine has HIV in it because Paxlovid, which is an antiviral to treat COVID, the generic ritonavir is also used in HIV. So she's got a case closed there on that. Wait, and this is a nurse? (laughs) Yeah, she's a nurse. Don't you feel like you, you should... Is it medical license? Like whatever the nursing license should be revoked if you're spreading that kind of misinformation because people look at that and they're like, oh, but she's a nurse. She knows. Right. So I do think that. And there is actually a group now called No License for Disinformation that is working with medical boards to try to alert them to this kind of problem on social media because almost all the misinformation is coming from these doctors that are, you know, like Dr. Robert Malone or Dr. Peter McCulloch or people that are technically doctors, but they're not seeing patients anymore. And they're just kind of doing this for 
clout or whatever reason, I'm, I don't know, fame, but they should know better than the things that they're saying. So it's it's definitely a problem and there are people working on it. This is why it's psycho. Yeah. It's psycho. And I'm asking this question facetiously, obviously, but how do we know you're not the bad doctor, <laughs> Dr. Cat? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, ugh. so the the thing that I tell people, because I do get that question a lot, like, why should I listen to you? And when all these other right. doctors are saying something different, you know, basically I, I always say, you know, you can listen to whoever you want. I'm not here to change anybody's mind, but I do back everything I say up. If you click the link in my bio and go to my link tree, everything I talk about, the articles are all there and they're all peer reviewed. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, I have all the information that I'm, that I'm talking about. These people who are making YouTube videos about how the vaccines are cytotoxic and the vaccines are causing, you know, all these problems, they don't even have one case study published to back up what they're saying. <laughs> it's all like them opining about things that could happen. I love this new group, though, that what you say it's called no license for misinformation or something for, di- for disinformation. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah, we should talk to them, especially if they're focused on social media spreaders uh, in particular. Yep, The main guy is Dr. Nick Sawyer. But that no license for disinformation has a Twitter, too. Oh, I love it. I love it. Beautiful. Do you have any thoughts on what the social media platforms themselves should be doing or a- any solutions that you, I don't know, whether it's government regulation, whatever it is, but given your work here, are there are there things that you really wish would be implemented? Right now, we have old legislation through like the FCC that basically says anything that's that's put onto a social media website by somebody from the public, the website is not liable for it. And uh, yes, basically this was instituted in 1996. Is this section 230 of the Communications mm-hmm. Decency Act? <laughs> yes, perfect. Nailed it. Yes, I feel so good. Continue, please. So this is a problem because we have outgrown this legislation, right? I agree. When mm-hmm. when this was put into place, we didn't have anything like what we have today with social media and content creators. And we only had, like we said, like chat rooms and comments and on a website and nothing as widespread as we have now. So the platforms all sort of, you know, can hide behind this legislation and just throw their hands up and say, it's not our problem. We didn't put it on there, you know? Yes. Another thing is that they actually profit off of misinformation, these platforms, because engagement is how they get clicks and how they get sponsorships Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. It doesn't matter if that video is good information or misinformation. It still lines the pockets of these platforms. And therein lies the rub. Yep. I say it all the time and I'll say it again. To save us all, we need to get rid of capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) But until we do, Dr. Kat, like, like that legislation is much needed, but then like, how do we enforce it truly? Like you, what, cause what, what you need is a board of professionals to, re- to look at your TikToks and say, oh, okay, she has peer reviewed evidence backing up what she's saying. And then they're going to look at mm-hmm. Dr. Oz's TikToks <laughs> and be like, no, this guy's a quack. Until he's the president and he runs TikTok. Well, hey, that's another story. 
the amount of expertise and labor to enforce yeah. even the greatest legislation. Like, I don't know how to how we can do that. I truly am at a loss there. I've done a lot of, talk, of thinking about this because I was part mm. of the 270 doctors that wrote the open letter to Spotify about the Joe Rogan misinformation. Oh, great. Yeah. The reason that we wrote the open letter was because Spotify had no clear and public policy moderating misinformation on their platform. We were just asking them to institute something because the stuff that was being tossed around on the Joe Rogan podcast, which had 11 million subscribers, was just, to be honest, outlandish information that wasn't real. It was all misinformation. A couple of episodes got sent to me by my followers like 500 times each. And people were like, can you please debunk this? But of course the episodes are like three hours long. So it's, <laughs> so a lot of information on a platform that size, if you hear a doctor saying like, oh, the vaccines are causing you know infertility and all these other things that are proven to be false. But if you hear that on a platform that size, it causes kind of like a sense of false balance where it seems like there's two sides to the scientific evidence when really mm -hmm. there's not. The vaccines are safe and they're effective and they aren't causing infertility. We have several studies now showing this, but there's you know people on there cherry picking data and and talking about things that quite frankly are irresponsible. And you know when you hear information like that and then decide not to get vaccinated because Dr. Malone said something that you that scared you, then, you know, that's costing people their lives. Mm -hmm. And in my research for all of that, I was looking at different policies on the different platforms. And YouTube actually keeps up with the evidence and they have specifically state in their, they specifically state in their guidelines, things like, if you say masks don't work to control the spread of COVID-19, that's against our community guidelines because it's counter to the scientific evidence. Okay. And that's how Dan Bongino, who's a Fox News host, lost his YouTube platform because he continually put out videos that masks don't work. I thought YouTube was a hotbed for conspiracy theories. So is this new? Like they're doing better? Because I heard that was like where people become radicalized. <laughs> I'm just saying like from a perspective of the written guidelines, they seem better than the others, be more specific. Mm -hmm. But to your point, whenever people are trying to argue with me about vaccines or anything like that, they send me a YouTube inevitably. That's the source. Hmm. Yeah, always. They're like, mm -hmm. this, I'm like, YouTube is not a source uh, by itself. Like who made this th all, all the time they're sending me YouTube links. And I say the same <laughs> thing. I say, well, I'm glad you are you know, doing research, but send me the paper that this data is based on or what whatever this is based on. And of course, there's never a paper. No. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's wild to me that people think it is a source. I feel like that's like pretty basic knowledge, but I guess it's not. It's 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 double sucks because there are some extraordinary YouTube channels for for science communication that are like really, really extraordinary and they cite their sources and they're great. So it's like, yeah. it comes back to like, is this information peer reviewed? Yep. If not, we're not accepting it as a, as a source. It's kind of a reflection of the problems in our educational system yep. that we're not informing people as they grow up about what is a source and what is not a source. 
That's right. And the, this is this conversation's totally just coming full circle because there that's the level of evidence I was talking about. Like not everybody has a full appreciation that all evidence is not equal in science, right? So something that is published, peer-reviewed, like a randomized clinical trial that was done in a very controlled way is not the same as Robert Malone talking on YouTube about how the vaccines might cause X, Y, and Z, and we have no data to support that, right? <laughs> so we're, we're simultaneously having a culture war about inclusion and bias and point of view. And what I mean by that is like, for hundreds of years, it was just white men deciding what goes into books and what doesn't go into books. And now we have the internet and everyone can be heard. And that was was and is the promise of an amazing, inclusive internet. So we want that. We want that to be true. And simultaneously, everyone can be heard and everyone thinks they're an expert and everyone can make a YouTube video. And holy shit, the train went off the rails. The challenge of the 21st century or the next 10 years, perhaps, is like, how can we reconcile these two things? Because one is awesome and one is right. destroying us, right? <laughs> I got into this conversation a lot during the Spotify letter, Joe Rogan, because I did a lot of the media for that effort that I was against freedom of speech and that my wanting to moderate things that are said means that I am against freedom of speech. But when it comes to a global health emergency or health information, it's really important to use evidence like you were saying before, peer-reviewed evidence, science, the state of things, the consensus as it stands, and not litter the space with non-evidence-based nonsense or things that have been proven to be false. So wanting to moderate that is not restricting someone's freedom of speech. It's right. superseding that by protecting people against information that could be harmful to them or to their lives. Yes. And in a public health sense, it's very important to moderate that. But it, of course, got taken out of context in that we were trying to muzzle Joe Rogan or get him taken off the air or like, None of the people that were dissenting had actually read our letter, mm -hmm. which was interesting because nobody asked for him to delete episodes. Nobody asked for him to be taken off Spotify. None of that. Mm -hmm. We just really thought that in a global health emergency, these platforms have a responsibility not to make the problem worse. Yeah. I mean, freedom of speech is... It's like up to a certain point. Right. You can say, you can hold and express whatever opinions you want, publicly written, as long as it doesn't infringe on the safety of others. Correct. Like <laughs> screaming fire in the movie theater is the... That's illegal. Yeah. You don't have the freedom to do that. Yeah. A global health crisis is a giant movie theater and these people are shouting fire when there isn't one. Exactly. And that's where the line is for the world. Or they're saying, stay in your seats, there's not a fire when smoke is coming through the doors. Yes. These platforms are not the government, right? So the freedom of speech is, is a principle supporting mm -hmm. their freedom to express themselves without fear of censorship or retaliation or legal sanctions from the government, right? These platforms are private companies, so they can moderate their platforms. It's not against the First Amendment for a private company to do that. But the issue is that these platforms have become the public square. Yes. So they are equivalent culturally true. to going out into the street and saying, I think this, which is protected. And so mm -hmm. that's where we have this public-private mm -hmm. clash of philosophies. People keep wanting to use the Constitution, which is supposed to protect people from the government. 
to right. let them attack each other. It's like the second amendment isn't for you to have a gun and go to the grocery store. No. The second amendment <laughs> is for you to have a gun and organize your friends to make sure the government isn't hurting you. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but it's also problematic to let the people under- decide when the government is hurting them. But I think also the second amendment mm-hmm. only applies to like muskets. And so you should only be allowed to have a musket. <laughs> like, honestly, when you turn 13, everyone can get issued a musket that has whack ratios of firing accurately or not and a 90 second (laughs) reload time for the fastest most accurate reloader in the world Mm -hmm. so yes we can all have a musket (laughs) but we can't all have an ar-15 put it on a t-shirt we can all have a musket yeah and you can say whatever you want as long as it's not hurting other people I don't care about your opinions, but when your opinions are misinforming people to the point where they are going to literally kill themselves or their families, that's not something Mm. that you can say. Right. And Mm. there's a difference between, you know, the Twitter account that has 10 followers saying, you know, the vaccine's, you know, not working and somebody going on the Joe Rogan podcast with 11 million followers saying all kinds of stuff. So to wrap things up. How is this affecting you mentally? Because this is a lot to be fighting people's nonsense all day. So trying to save the world on TikTok every all day, every day. Yeah, how do you what do you think and how do you stay sane? Well, I definitely have my moments. <laughs> I think that I'm better now at dealing with it than I was at the beginning. I was very surprised as I've never been in a situation with public backlash before. I was always just kind of the college professor just in my classroom. So, you know, I had difficult students, but I've never had anything like this. In that sense, being kind of on a public stage, saying things that are perceived to be controversial by some people will invite some harassment and issues that way. And because I work at a university, all my information is very public, my contact information. So I get a lot of messages at work from people, especially when I was doing a lot of media about the Spotify initiative. I was definitely targeted. I was made fun of by conservative podcast hosts and all kinds of stuff. So it's been interesting. But honestly, the people that are nasty and harassing me. It bothers me less now than it did at the beginning. And so I'm kind of glad that I had a lot of time to get used to it before this Spotify thing happened, because now I just kind of roll my eyes, whereas before I would be get really upset by comments and especially comments about like my appearance and my voice. And there's a lot of misogyny you know, oh, her her bangs look like this or her voice, she's got vocal fry, like things that nobody would say if I wasn't a female scientist, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. I had one person that every single time I would post a video, they would say, why don't you get vocal coaching or something? Because I can't listen <gasps> oh to you. Oh, my God. And it's and li- there's literally nothing I can do about my voice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, thanks, random commenter. That seems like a great use of time while you're busy being an mm. epidemiologist just in trying to educate people on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. If you could do these in an Australian accent, that would be much better for me. You've already gone to school for 21 years of your life, but could you also get a yeah. vocal coach for me? So they, exactly. So stuff like that used to really get to me. But two years later, I'm more just tired. And I just, I do, I delete a lot of comments if they're abusive to either me or another one of my followers. 
I block people almost every day. <laughs> and I get that whole, well, if you don't agree with her, she'll just block you. But honestly, if somebody's abusive, they just get an automatic block. I don't even want to go back and forth. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Bye. And speaking of, <laughs> we got to go. Uh, this has been <laughs> absolutely delightful. And thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing because I can't. And um, it's good that you are. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. We love a scientist. We do. You know, there have been some interesting collaborations between comedians and scientists trying to make science more accessible. I don't think that any that I've seen so far really works, but I really would like someone or or us maybe to one day crack that nut because <laughs> it's a real problem, you know, education yeah. in this country. You know, on on my videos where I make fun of stuff like this, I get a lot of people commenting, this is in America, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah. So sad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm. They can mm-hmm. tell. <laughs> they can tell the every time. The they're like, these like, are Americans. They're, they're always like, we don't have that problem people. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did one making fun of, um, oh, my God, this is kind of ridiculous, but I found out fairly recently that a lot of my guy friends, like before they'd ever seen a vagina or had any idea what it was, like no idea at all, they thought it was just like a hole. Just like a hole. <laughs> and so I posted that on TikTok and it got like a hundred thousand views and a lot of engagement. And a lot of people were saying, like, no, in our country we have sex education at X age and they fi- are fine. And it was all Americans being like, Yep, thought it was a hole, or I thought it was this, or I thought or I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm hearing is you posted your vagina on TikTok and it got a hundred thousand views. I can't believe That's it got heard. taken down, honestly. Like I don't understand what was wrong. <laughs> all right. If you would like to uh, interact with us on social media well first go follow epidemiologist cat and then i am at ally underscore goldie a-l-l-i underscore g-o-l-d-i across social media platforms including venmo <laughs> <laughs> i am at the Lindsay life across all platforms not including venmo <laughs> you can also uh, if you don't want to venmo me you can visit our patreon <laughs> patreon.com slash 2g1p we're also chatting in discord discord.gg slash 2g1p Sometimes Matt drops weird videos in there. Go check it out. <laughs> you can email us at 2G1podcast at gmail.com. You can call us. That number is 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6548. And we're on Facebook, Two Girls, One Podcast. And I think that's all. So thank you so Heart much. your faces. Bye. We'll see you next time. Podcast is hosted by Lindsay Ford and Allison Goldberg, then played in biology class at Yale School of Medicine. I mean, produced and edited by Matt Silverman in New York City. Additional editing by Avital Ayler. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.